Thank you so much to our sponsors, McMahon Law Firm, The Insiders, helping you get every dollar you deserve, 265-1100. And RC2 Realty Solutions, real estate investments. Robin Ring's got a brand new thing. Call 531-1722. Only in Jeff Styles, America. Hello, folks, and welcome back to Storyville with Jeff Styles. Nuga's own Jeff Styles, but why? Old El Jefe. And um, I'm going to do kind of almost sort of nearly what I did when I was talking about uh, my trip out west back in 1980, a little bit earlier this summer and the anniversary of that trip. I'm taking a little bit of time off here from the station, just a little bit of time off. Yeah, yeah, I'll do the best I can. I'm going to I'd uh, maybe have a couple of souvenirs, a couple of old stinky shells from the seashore. The seashore, where I'm, I'm going to go to for at least a few days, with some old high school buddies of mine that I've maintained very close ties, friendships with over the years. We're going to go down to Cumberland Island. Cumberland Island is a national seashore. Uh, it is a federal wilderness right off the coast of Georgia and Florida. The very southernmost tip of it actually would probably be uh, almost in, in the state of Florida if it was a state park. Uh, it's off the coast of a little town called St. Mary's. It was established in 1978, the year I graduated high school. And uh, there was a group of us high school students who went down there, brand new national wilderness, national seashore area. And uh, it was phenomenal. It, it became, upon arrival, I would have to say the single most important, pivotal piece of, of land in my life. It's the most important place to me, my heart and soul, my being of anywhere. I, I've been to so many beautiful places. I've seen so many awe-inspiring locations. I mean, the Grand Canyon is hard to beat. We've talked about Glacier National Park. We've talked about Yosemite and Yellowstone and Zion and Bryce and and just, I mean, all kinds of, you know, the, the West Coast, the Rocky, Oregon and Washington State Coast and, and up into Banff, Alberta, Canada and, and Jasper and Lake Victoria. And I just, I've, I've stood on top of a 19,000 foot high mountain in Mexico and you could see the curvature of the earth. And that was a, a huge deal, a, a massive summit for me and, a, and another, you know, six guys um, that I was able to pull off right before I turned 40. Um, I've, I've seen a lot of things. I've been to a lot of places in my life, and I'm, I feel very, 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 very lucky to have had those experiences. Nothing compares to the simple beauty, just the placidness, the peace, and just... I, I, I say simple, but it's really a complex beauty of Cumberland Island. You can Google it. You can search it. You can get out to it. They do day trips. The, the, you can only get there. It's only accessible by water. Being an island, it's about a 45-minute boat ride from the town of St. Mary's. And uh, there are a handful of private landowners who still live there. They got grandfathered in. And these are the scions of the Carnegies and uh, a handful of the very, very rich industrial age people 
um, if you're familiar with the book, it came from Jekyll Island. It's kind of the basis of many conspiracy theories to this day, dealing with the Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission and these shadowy groups, kind of like the Illuminati that are out there that still pull the strings of the industrial world today. And Jekyll Island, of course, one of the Golden Isles, is where they supposedly met. So this, this, this island is one in that chain. Many people know Cumberland because that is where John F. Kennedy Jr. and Carolyn Bassett were married in a tiny little AME church at the very north end of the island. The island is at its widest, the widest point, which is where you dock, where the actual boat docks and the ranger station is, to the beach is about one mile. It's about a mile hike. And that is where the majority of the people go. And about a mile south of that, the southern tip, is a place called Dungeness. And that is actually the ruins of a great castle that was owned by the Carnegies. It burned back in the late 50s, early 60s. It burned down to just ruins. And the ruins still stand today and look very impressive and particularly ghostly on a moonlit night when the fireflies are out. And it's just a, a throwback to a, the Gilded Age, a totally different time. And then there's another 17 miles or so that spread to the north, a thin little strip of land. And at the very, very northern tip is that little AME church where there was a colony of freed slaves that lived there, and that was their church, and that's where JFK and Carolyn got married, so they could do it away from the prying eyes of people, so a lot of people remember that. Um, it's a super special place, I'm just going to tell you, over the course of the next couple of Storyvilles, um, these are going to be pre-recorded, obviously, in my absence, just about some adventures there, and I'm going to start with this one, the very first trip. Go out there with this group of high school students, uh, integrated group, I guess there were, there were less than a dozen of us. This was in a class that was called Independent Study. Independent Study was the, I guess, the, the secret name for really our gifted class. And I came from Ohio halfway through my, you know, freshman, you know, year, or through, at least halfway through the football season as a freshman, and uh, was given some kind of test. I guess it was some sort of IQ test. I don't know. And they asked me if I wanted to join this class, which I did in my sophomore year. But now I'm a senior in 78. And when I was a junior, we went to the Okefenokee for my first time, canoed through it, a three-day trip, remarkable. But now I'm a senior. I'm a big man on campus, big dog, right? And I'm going down there with a bunch of, you know, people that were my age and one year younger, juniors and seniors. And we get on the ferry and we go out to this island and we are so ill-prepared. It is ridiculous. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say it, too. The young black students, fellow students and friends, very close friends of mine, were not even beginning to be prepared for this because camping was not part of their lifestyle. Even in the rural South, uh, most of my black friends were not really outdoors people. They showed up with canvas tents. I mean, old school, World War II era canvas tents with big you know, stacks of aluminum poles held together with just strips of cloth that they were carrying in their arms, carrying in their arms 
like you were carrying a bundle of firewood, you know, from, from someplace to your, to your hearth. And we were supposed to hike seven miles. Let me tell you something. Nobody carries anything in their arms for seven miles. I don't care if it's your, your newborn child. That weight will be so great and so ponderous after the first half of a mile that you will be just hating life. So we didn't make it seven miles. And even the few of us that actually had real backpacks were still not prepared for this. The road is flat as a flitter, flat as a pancake. It's on an island in the middle of the ocean. There is not a hill. You can see the road, one road that stretches from the south tip to the north tip, completely covered in live oaks, covered with Spanish moss. Great snapshot, great picture, beautiful scenery of this road snaking down through there. Never a rise, never goes one foot up, one foot down, as far as you can see. Let me tell you something, that road stretches forever. Take, take, just go down to the local track, the local high school football field, and walk that track four times. That's a mile. Doesn't seem that far, does it? Put your ass on that sandy road and walk a mile, and it will seem like it's 20 times further. The heat, the humidity, the unchanging scenery, the never a left, never a right, never an up, never a down, and the weight of whatever it is you've got will start to wear on you. The seven-mile campsite never saw it. We got to a point that was three and a half miles in. We were beginning to swap loads around. I would take this person's canvas tent, give them my backpack. We got up there. We were so miserable. The good part about that particular campsite at three and a half miles, it was the last spot on the island that had a water source, a potable water source, supposedly potable. Some people say potable. That means drinkable. But still, we were warned that we should boil it. So we get there. We've already drained our canteens. There's not a canteen among us that has a drop in it at this point. We've sweated until we're not even sweating anymore. Dangerous place to be. When you're hot and you're really beginning to overheat and you're not sweating anymore, you're in danger. And we're young and in shape. And, and it was miserable. We're chafing. We're chafing in places we don't want to talk about. And there was misery abounding. We said, we're stopping right here. And threw all our stuff down, set up a rough camp with the little bit of energy that we had left. Started, you know, using this one little spigot that they had here to fill up water, made small fires. A couple of people actually had even little small Coleman stoves. And we started, the, you know, flames and started boiling water and said, well, let's get to the beach. Getting to the beach was easier said than done, too, because you actually have to go through a little bit of a, a brackety area. In the live oak forests, there's plenty of space. Live oaks come up from the ground and their their limbs are huge the limbs on these big live oak trees that are 350 400 years old the USS Constitution old ironsides was made from live oaks from Cumberland Island it was called old ironsides because when it actually drew up next to british ships 
cannonballs would bounce off the side of this warship. So it was dubbed Old Ironsides and still sails to this day. That's how tough this wood is. And the, yeah, still active. And, and literally, I mean, it's still, it's still in the U.S. Navy. And, and they sail it once or twice a year around, and it's still moving. So these things are, the tensile strength of these trees is unimaginable. It sends out limbs that are the size of trees that actually dive back down into the sandy soil and then come back up looking very much like another tree, but it's really the limb of this other tree. The first thing that me and my friends thought was Mirkwood. We got off and we felt like we were someplace right out of the Lord of the Rings. We were in the depth of Mirkwood, the old forest where the spiders were going after the hobbits. It was so magical, so cool with the Spanish moss hanging down. And, but we had to go to this really low-lying area between the sandy floor and the beach and there are two or three sets of dunes, one primary set of dunes, which is like 40 feet high, very impressive, and then a smaller set. And in that smaller set, that little dip there, there's always standing water, fresh water, rainwater, which is collected in that little ditch-like area, pretty much throughout the entire island. It's like a moat. Guess what else is in the moat? Alligators. So we had to forward through this knee-to-waist-deep, tannic-stained black water, just like the Okefenokee, because all of the cypress down there tends to, to give off a dark tint, and it's tannic-stained water, so it's very, very dark. And we were literally, to, to get to the beach, this beautiful, expansive beach, nobody there, nobody as far as you can see, up and down the beach. And it's like a Daytona beach. It's like Jacksonville, Daytona, um, you know, Fort Lauderdale. Very wide, very hard packed. You can drive on it. If there were vehicles out there, and the Rangers had, had Jeeps, of course, you can drive on it like it's concrete. Huge expanse of beach, not one single person, no lifeguard stands, no popsicle stands, no drink stands, no kiosks, no umbrellas, nothing. You, the forest, the dunes, the beach, the waves, that's it. You can see it out there, but we had to actually make our way through the snaky, swampy, alligator-ridden water. An interesting thing for young folks to be doing who have never done anything like this before. At any rate. We hit the beach, we do some body surfing, get stung by jellyfish, get burned by the sun. We're feeling pretty good about life at this point. You know, we're in pain. Our feet are sore. We got blisters. We're just, we're, we're tired, but we're still just loving life. We're in this beautiful place. This is the one story I want to tell you in this little segment more than anything else. I am in heaven for the most part. I'm just absolutely amazed at how beautiful this place is. The stars come out at night. There's no light pollution. No light pollution whatsoever. There's no town around. There's nothing. It's like being at a, a, on a ship at sea. And so, I mean, the Milky Way is just busting out. We're seeing so many stars. It's crazy. And they're shooting stars. Absolutely incredible sunset. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. But now it's time to actually go to sleep. And we've already made up our mind. We're not going to stay there more than one night. We're going back to the actual, what they call the civilized campsite, 
which is pretty much the exact same thing, only it has a restroom, and it has cold water showers, and it has one water fountain that you can actually drink out of that you don't have to boil. We're going back the next day. That's as, that's as rough as we want to rough it. So we're laying on the ground. It's too hot to actually even get inside a tent. A couple of people did. I know they were miserable. And I just coated myself with whatever we had, some sort of off, woodsman's off. I don't even know if that existed then. Cutter, you know, whatever had DEET in it. I think it was probably military, you know, uh, industrial strength DEET. I'm sure I'll probably have five different types of cancer from hosing myself down with this stuff to keep the mosquitoes off of me. And two things happened that night that are burned into my brain. Number one, my first encounter ever with an armadillo. There's everything on this, on this island. There's, it's, it's amazing. It has wild horses, as many of the barrier islands do. It has a, a huge, you know, just... What, what would you call them? Herd of wild horses. Don't try to touch the horses. They look beautiful, but they're wild and they will stomp a mud hole in you just to be looked at from afar. Uh, deer everywhere, small deer, miniature deer. Even the full-size bucks are much smaller than what we're used to seeing around here because deer tend to grow to the size of their container, kind of like a boa constrictor, I guess, or a koi, goldfish. And, you know, when they're in this, this underbrush and in this limited area, they just don't get that big. They need to be able to move quick. Bobcats grow very big. Tallest, lankiest, biggest bobcats you've ever seen in your life. Not uncommon to see one. Very rare to see a bobcat around here. You hear them all the time. But, I mean, they would actually present themselves. Uh, let's see. Raccoons aplenty. And raccoons are smart. We'll talk more about those in a little bit. And just all kinds of, of, of life. Turkey, wild turkey everywhere. But armadillos, none of us in 1978 were used to seeing armadillos. Now the southeast is covered up with them. But at the time, that was a brand new animal. None of us had seen one that day. We heard scurrying in the palmettos off to the side, just assumed it must have been probably raccoons or squirrels or something like that. Well, early in the night, I had actually drifted off just laying on the sandy soil, just on my sleeping bag with a little sheet pulled over me, soaked with off, and I heard this snuffling sound. And I looked over to where my buddy Chris was laying, and Chris was a, a good-looking guy, very well-muscled. He'd really worked on his physique. He was a lifeguard, and he was a, a very, very good water skier. And uh, so his upper body strength was pretty amazing. And, but he saw himself as a real tough guy. He lives out in Colorado now, and he hunts. That is his, his reason for existence. He has a job. He's got a family. But he is a hunter, and a trophy hunter. So he's not scared of much. I heard this snuffling, and he was no further away than Jason, the Argonaut, the guy producing the show is for me right now. And I crack open an eye thinking, I hope it's not a bobcat. And there's this thing I've never seen before, a possum on a half shell. This creature encased in armor with a long scaly tail, huge, big, scaly claws, Massive claws, huge raking-looking claws. Look like they could really do some damage to you. 
in this big snout like an anteater. I mean, a nose that was a foot away from its face. I was totally amazed at the sight of this thing. Big old sticky hairs, big stiff sticky hairs coming out of this thing's nose and face. And I'm just looking at it going, oh my God, it's an armadillo. I didn't know they would be out here. And he's snuffling around my buddy's head. Here's Chris's head. He's, he's got the sheet pulled up like I do around his eyes to keep the, the gnats and the mosquitoes away. And all of a sudden, while I'm looking, before I get a chance to say anything, I was trying to think about what am I going to say? Hey, look out. There's an odd creature. You know, he cracks open an eye. And this thing's nose is right there, right at his eyeball level. And he shrieks. He squeals like a three-year-old girl that has just been surprised by a clown jumping around the corner of a dark house. I've never heard anything as high-pitched and as feminine come out of a guy's body ever in my entire life. And Here's something you don't know about armadillos unless you've actually been around them for a while, which we're not. Their defense mechanism is jumping. They jump. An armadillo is pretty quick, and we've learned that they can swim like nobody's business. They're much more aquatic than you would ever think. You think armored possum, they're going to they're gonna sink like a rock. No, they're hydrodynamic. They can go... But their vertical leap is amazing. If they were ballers, they would dominate the court. I'm talking about four and a half to five feet. That's the reason they're always dead on the side of the road. 18-wheeler comes by. If they'd just be still, they wouldn't get hit. But because the noise of the oncoming vehicle alarms them, they jump, boom, right into the damn grill they go. Boom, right into the grill they go. And they haven't evolved yet. They still jump into the grill of the oncoming car. That's the reason armadillos are always dead on the highway. He squealed. Armadillo leaped. When armadillo leaped, he leaped. I don't even know how he did it physically because he's laying there on the ground. His legs were under him. He didn't have enough arm strength. He rose three and a half feet himself just from nothing but an involuntary muscle jerk. Just the squeal and his body contracting and releasing all muscles, including those in his inner ear, at the same time, in one great big burst. And he just levitated three and a half feet. And by the time the armadillo hit, he was already running. This is cartoon time now. That little mother was just... And so he's coming down, and he's already running. He's in full run mode. So when he hits the sand, he's blowing sand everywhere. Takes off takes off. And so by the time everybody else raises up, it's going, what? What's that? What's going on? What's going on? There's Chris. He's beside himself. He's hysterical. He's, he doesn't even know what he's seen. He just knows a beast from a dark nightmare had just been right up in his eyeball, had no idea what it was. And every, he's pointing in all directions. He doesn't know which way it went. I'm the only one that saw the fact that it was an armadillo. It took about 10 minutes to calm everybody down. Some people were sure it was a lion. Some people were sure it was a bear. It, it, it was an armadillo. Everybody was freaked out. It took another two hours for everybody to calm down. It's the middle of the night. 
jet black. There is, again, no ambient light. A couple of light sources. Now we're blinding each other. We're losing our night vision. Everybody calm down. It was an armadillo. Oh, my gosh. So now he actually gets in a tent with somebody. He ain't going to have no more armadillos. I'm thinking, well, that's not going to bother you. And I'm laying out there. And then there's my other buddy, Joe. Bad, bad Joe from Kokomo, we called him. And he had been so smart. He was so smart. He brought a hammock. He brought an old school hammock. This was before the emo hammocks were popular now. This is 1978. He, he brought an old school hammock from somewhere in some grandmother's yard and hauled that thing in there and put it up between two small trees. And when he first put it up, we were envious. We were thinking, wow, that was a good idea. He's off the ground. He's got a little breeze blowing under him. And Joe's got it going on. I wish I had Joe's hammock. What we didn't think about, and this, I will never forget this sound as long as I live. The trees were young enough. They were really not much more than saplings. They started beginning to lean in. Slowly but surely, mean old Mr. Gravity started pulling them together with the weight of Bad Bad Joe from Kokomo, his body, until when he first laid in there, he was, he was fairly horizontal. He had a pretty good little torque in there. <laughs> and it, I just saw it happening. He started becoming more and more you-like, as in the letter U. It got to the point where he couldn't be on his side. He couldn't be, he couldn't, he just had to lay on his back. And at one point I was asleep and I heard moaning and groaning and sounds of misery. And I look over there and Joe is now, his nose is probably about three inches away from his knees. He's nose to knees in the hammock, which is now a full letter U. His tailbone is no more than an inch off the ground. And so there he is encased in the hammock. The trees have come together to form an X at the top. And he is just swooped in there looking like a boomerang, if that. And he's fighting it. And everybody else is asleep and snoring and breathing deep. And I'm just looking over at him and going, oh, poor sucker. And I hear him say, Dear God in heaven, help me. <laughs> that, those were the words. Dear God in heaven, help me. Help me, God. Because that that's all he had. Because now he's committed to the hammock. And he's already seen what happens when you lay on the ground. I was the only one, I think, at that point still laying on the ground outside of a tent. Because the armadillo scared everybody, and he didn't want to get out of the hammock and put his ass on the ground, even though the armadillo could have leaped over him several times if he wanted to. But I'll never forget that, that whimpering moan. Dear God in heaven, help me. The next morning, we wake up, and we break camp, and the chafing has now become a major ordeal. The three-and-a-half-mile trip back to what they call sea camp may have been the most bow-legged group of people you've ever seen walking in your life. Everybody had some serious, serious problems going on in that special place that we won't go into right now. Nobody was going into that place, I can tell you that, even on the best-looking girls among us. Nobody was going there. It was nothing but fiery, red, blistered, sore, 
Um, and that was the first night. We stayed out there a couple of more days and had a ball. Cumberland became my favorite place immediately, even with that misery index. And that island has a high misery index. Let me tell you, it will punish you if you're not prepared for it. And I want to tell everybody to go and explore it and enjoy it. And at the same time, I want to say, stay the hell away from it. Leave it alone. There's always somebody with some smart-ass idea about developing it and putting a Ramada in out there. And I swear to God, I'll go earth first, and I'll blow the whole damn thing up before I let that happen. Fred Podcast wouldn't be possible without the support of our sponsors, Kelly Subaru, Safe, Frugal, and Green, Riverfront at MLK and at kellysubaru.com, Dr. Brett Moldenhauer, Institute for Acupuncture and Wellness, and North Spring Cryotherapy, northspring.com.